0: Shalom and welcome everyone. Glad you are here on the Aliyah day. It is the second day of the week. It is a bright and beautiful, well, spiritually anyway, Monday morning. Here in the, the great state of Tejas, it's a bit foggy, or froggy, as my mother used to say, uh, outside. So, Brukashem, But it is bright and here, and I'm glad to be with you. As I said, it's the second day of the week, therefore it is the second Aliyah. And we are studying Parashah Bo, looking at the plagues. This is the Parashah of the Redemption, looking at the exodus from Egypt. I hope everybody is having a beautiful and amazing day. I'm glad that you are here from wherever you're watching. Guten Abend. Buenos dias. Uh, bonjour. Bonsoir. Welcome, everybody. Glad you're here. Sudanya. All of our languages <laughs> Glad you're here this morning. Boker, Boker Tov. How could I forget Boker Tov? If you have the Artsko Khumish, we are going to be reading on page 3, uh, 43. 343. We are in chapter 10, chapter 10, and we'll begin reading in verse 11 to continue our reading, continue our discussion of the plagues, and as is typical, we have a lot of insights, a lot of Things to um, to say, to bring down lessons that we can learn uh, about ourselves, about life, and about Mashiach. This is the Aliyah day, it's what we're all about. So, welcome. Okay, so, chapter 10, verse uh, 12. Did I say 12? Yes, verse 12. Here it is. Adonai said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, for the locust swarm. And it will ascend upon the land of Mitzrayim and eat all the grass of the land, everything that the hail had left. Now I want to pause right here and read an interesting insight from the Midrash Tanchuma. Because at first, according to the Midrash Tanchuma, the people were excited about all the locusts coming. Why? Because somebody's coming over for dinner. This is what it says. Why were they plagued with the locusts? Because they forced Bait Israel to plant wheat and barley for them. So they were why did what what was the reason behind the locust specifically? And the answer is that, that part of the slaves' duties was to plant the fields. So here the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, had planted wheat and barley, and so the the Egypt was benefiting from, from that. So as a result, Hashem had sent the locusts. So it says, he therefore brought the locusts to devour all that B'nai Israel had planted for them. Rabbi Yochanan said, when the locusts first came, the Egyptians rejoiced. And they said to each other, let us gather them and boil them and fill our barrels with them. So in Louisiana, they have a crawfish boil, but in ancient Egypt, it was a locust boil. Everybody was going to get out their uh, banjos. And they were going to sing uh, French songs in Egypt. It was multinational. And they were going to have a uh, locust boil with uh, all the, all the uh, spices, spicy locusts. But, so they were excited. They were like, look, we're have, we don't have to go to the market. We, they're coming to us. So they were excited. Look, this is a good thing. So the Holy One, blessed be he, said, wicked ones, will you then rejoice with the plague I brought upon you? Thereupon Adonai turned a very strong westerly wind that carried away the locusts and not a single locust remained in all the uh, Egyptian borders. So it's saying that after the locusts destroyed everything, Hashem caused the wind to come and took all the locusts away. And it says here, even those that had been picked into their pots and barrels, they took wing and flew off. So even the ones that they collected for the For the locust boil, to have the big uh, shindig down there, and the uh, French Quarter of of Egypt, even those flew away. So it says, the locust swarm ascended over the entire land of Egypt, and it rested in the entire border of Egypt, and very severely, before it was, before it, there was never a locust swarm like it, and after it, there will never be one to its equal it covered the surface of the entire land and the land was darkened it ate all the grass of the land and all the fruit of the trees and the hail that the hail had left over so whatever the hail had left over whatever the the hail had uh had had uh, left remaining the locust ate no greenery remained on the tree or the grass of the field in the entire Land of Mitzrayim. There was no grass. All of the Bermuda grass was gone. Verse 16. Pharaoh hastened to summon Moshe and Aaron and said, I have sinned to Adonai, your God, and to you. And now please forgive my sin just this time and entreat Adonai, your God, that he removed from me only this death. So he wanted to... Uh, Again, he's making the feign towards repentance and saying, you know, please remove this. So verse 18, he left Pharaoh and entreated Adonai, and Adonai turned back a very powerful west wind, and it carried the locust swarm and hurled it toward the sea of reeds. Not a single locust remained within the entire border of Mitzrayim. But Adonai strengthened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not send out the children of Israel. Notice again, as we've pointed out numerous times, now we have a situation where Hashem himself is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And many people have read this and said, well, that's not fair. How can you make teshuva if God is is, is himself hardening your heart? Well, that's just it. There were all of these plagues that Pharaoh himself had every opportunity to make teshuva, and he continually chose not to. And so after doing that so many times, God says, all right, if that's the way you want to play, then I'm going to, instead of allowing you and helping you even to make teshuva, I'm going to now use your stubbornness and use your intentional blindness to further my plan. And that. As I've said again and again and again is 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 something that we are just going to have to be aware of in our lives that we are not intentionally blind that we don't harden our heart towards truth um because we we've been taught erroneously that you know oh god is ever he's compassionate he's just going to uh uh you know we can just say no to him a million times and and uh, everything's fine well um it is true that he's compassionate. It is true that he's long-suffering. It is true that we can make teshuvah any time in our life. That's all true. However, there is a point at which, and no one knows, only God knows, there's a point at which, if you say no enough, then he'll let you say no and he'll allow you to live in darkness thinking you're living in light. And even the sages have said that he'll help you towards that because that's what you want to do. That's what's going all with favor here. Again, it's just something we have to be careful of in our own life, that we don't, become like Pharaoh. Verse 21, Adonai said to Moses, Stretch forth your hand toward the heavens, and there shall be darkness upon the land of Mitzrayim, and the darkness will be tangible. Moshe stretched forth his hand towards the heavens, and there was thick darkness throughout the land of Mitzrayim for a three-day period. So for three days there's darkness. No man could see his brother, nor could anyone rise from his place for a three-day period. But f- but for all the children of Israel, there was light in their dwelling. So let's look at the insights now and see what we can glean from, from what we've just read. And let me take a quick peek here and see. There was a couple of things I wanted to share that I think got left over even from um, from last week. Yes, here's a couple of just a couple of insights. This is a bit off talk topic, but I wanted to share something. This kind of goes hand in hand with what a comment I made during the drash on Shabbat about uh, how the Mashiach is is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? What does it mean after the order of Melchizedek? It means that the, the Mashiach is someone who is both a king and a priest. Now, this is not a new phenomenon because we find, if we study out the literature, that Abraham himself was also a king and a priest. I talked about that on Shabbat. We also find that Moshe was considered a king and a priest. But even though Aaron was the high priest, but Moses himself was considered a king of the Jews, and he's also, according to all rabbinic literature, considered the very first and and very highest priest. You could almost say that that Moses was the great high priest. You could almost make that argument. It says that Moses put together the the tabernacle, for instance, himself. But there's another allusion to this, uh, because in verse 23 of chapter 6, it's giving a lineage, and it says that, that Aaron took a a wife for himself, and it says he took Elisheba. Now, the commentaries bring down that she was from the tribe of Judah, and later her brother Nachshon was to become the leader of Judah. That's found in Numbers chapter 1 and verse 7. So it says here in Rabbi Monk's commentary, Thus Aaron's marriage accomplished the majestic union of the priestly And the royal tribes. So here we have just another precedent. Because Aaron in this story represents one of the two Mashiachs. Of course the two Mashiachs are really the same Mashiach with two different missions. But very often referred to as two Mashiachs. Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David. Moshe represents Mashiach ben David. And Aaron represents Mashiach ben Yosef. What's interesting about this is that Aaron is married to Judah. In other words, the priesthood and the kingship are combined in the person of Aaron, who represents who? Mashiach ben Yosef. So when when Yeshua is here and he is Mashiach ben Yosef and he is both a king and a priest, you see that you see the connection. Also I wanted to point out that Phineas, it's talking about Phineas here in talking about Aaron and his uh, combination of priesthood and so on, it goes on to speak about uh, other people in that lineage. And it brings down a little comment here about Phineas, who many of the sages believe that Phineas is also Elijah. Because God said to Phineas, you shall be a a priest for me forever. In other words, you're not going to die. And of course, uh, Eliyahu did not die. So it says here that... uh, Phineas, what made Phineas great? This is kind of the idea. What, one of Phineas' ancestors, it's interesting, but I, okay, because we're talking here about Phineas, but we could potentially be talking about Eliyahu, Elijah, so the, the question I pose is, what made Phineas, a.k.a. Elijah, great? And we have to, we have to look at, at, at the combination that Scripture uses. It says there, one of Phineas' ancestors was, was Jethro. Now, what's special about Jethro? What's special about Jethro is that he's one of the quintessential converts, that he was a priest of Midian, that he overcame the heresy of idol worship, that he was a convert to Judaism. And his other ancestor, Phinehas' other ancestor, was Joseph, who had triumphed over the tyranny of his senses. So what made Joseph great, or excuse me, Phineas great, was that his soul was imbued with two qualities of his ancestors. One with the quality of the convert who resists idolatry, and the other is the quality of the Mashiach ben Yosef who resists temptation of the flesh. Just an interesting insight I want to share with you because it is so instructive, uh, not just to us personally, but also as we're looking at um, as at Mashiach. Now, another insight that I wanted to share with you, <clears throat> also from last week, was it's this is to verse sixteen in chapter nine, verse sixteen, chapter nine. It says, "However, for this I ha- I I let you endure in order to show you my strength, and so that my name may be declared throughout the world." So the question becomes, why is it that Hashem allows? Pharaoh to live. Why doesn't God just uh, just uh, destroy Pharaoh? Why doesn't He just destroy Pharaoh? Okay. And uh, the answer is is because He wants Pharaoh to be able to spread his his uh, reality, his knowledge across the world. Okay. Now there's an interesting insight as to how that comes about. So it says here, however, for this I've let you endure. It says in the in the Midrash, Rabbi Nachmias notes that this statement also applies to future plagues. In fact, and this is this is brought down in Pirkei de-Rabbi Eliezer in chapter 43. Now, it says here, indeed Pharaoh alone survived the destruction of the armies uh, of, of the Egyptian army. Only Pharaoh was left alive. Just like, just like the movie Ten Commandments. His whole, um, his whole army was destroyed. And only Pharaoh was left alive. Why? And here's the answer. So that he could personally witness Hashem's glory. Now it says here this is uh, uh something that uh, you the rest of the story. Remember what was that guy's name? The, the radio host. I suddenly went blank. The rest of this. this is the rest of the story. You're probably not going to hear any anywhere else. It says here he subsequently became the king of Nineveh. So the the rabbis asked the question: Why is it that the Ninevites were so quick to repent? Paul Harvey. Thank you, Shoshana. Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. What was it about the Ninevites that they were so quick to repent that even their animals made shuva? And the answer is that their king was none other than the Pharaoh of Egypt who had already endured the ten plagues. And when he heard the edict of the prophet, he said, I'm not going to go through this again. We're just going to all make teshuvah. It was all part of God's plan so that the power of God The reality of God would spread to the whole world, which tells us obviously Hashem's heart is to reach all mankind. So it says he subsequently became the king of Nineveh in order that my name may be declared throughout the world. The Torah alludes to this in in 1428 where it says there remained not one of them. That is literally to be understood as there remained only one of them. Now, going back to our um, commentary here. There's an insight again. It talks about the, the miracles themselves. Let's just talk about the miracles, why we need to have the miracles to begin with. So it says, Would the Israelites have accepted the Torah on Mount Sinai if they had not experienced the extraordinary miracles of Egypt? Now, the reason I'm bringing this up Is it through the years I've come across anti-missionary, those are you know, Jews for Judaism, people that are against the Mashiach. Their arguments, and one of their arguments is they they just completely dismiss miracles as if they're not even necessary. Because one of the obvious arguments for the Mashiach is well, how can you I mean, look at his miracles. His miracles are well recorded. The miracles of Yeshua are well recorded, not just in so called Christian literature but also in Jewish literature. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a well-known fact. How can you dispute? So, so don't the miracles say something? And the modern-day uh, anti-missionaries attitude is, oh, no, Jews don't follow miracles. We don't even care about it. It doesn't matter one iota. Uh, miracle, shmiracle. Uh, what, the only thing that matters is, you know, the, 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 the truth, blah, 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 blah. Well, on the one hand, they're right. Because the Torah teaches us in Devarim chapter 13 that if you even if you have somebody come along and they're raising the dead, and this is what people who believe in the Mashiach need to hear. You need to hear the words that are coming out of my mouth and you need to understand it. If you have somebody come along and they're doing great miracles, raising the dead, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, uh, walking on water, all those kinds of things. Doing great miracles, but that so-called prophet or would-be messiah or whatever is leading you away from the way of God, a.k.a. Torah. In other words, they're doing great miracles. And they're saying, see how I raise the dead? Yes, this is great. Okay, eat a hymn sandwich. See how I opened blind eyes? Yes, fantastic. All right, instead of Passover, I want you to celebrate this other pagan holiday from the goddess of star. See how I walked on water? Oh, man, that's amazing. Fantastic. I need to make sure that you stop celebrating the Sabbath. That person is a liar and a heretic. They're A deceiver. So in that sense, yes, the miracles wouldn't make a difference. The miracles aren't supposed to matter, obviously. Okay? But that's not what we're talking about. On the other hand, if you just dismiss miracles as if they make no difference whatsoever and who even cares... That's not at all Jewish. That's not at all a Jewish idea, and I'm about to prove it to you. So, as it says here, Would the Israelites have accepted the Torah on Mount Sinai if, say if, if they had not experienced the extraordinary or the extraordinary, which which is what the word extraordinary actually is, miracles of Egypt? It is possible that they would not have, as is evidence from the very first words of the Ten Commandments, where God presents himself to the people as the one who brought them out of Egypt. In other words, as God is about to give us the Torah, he prefaces all of that by saying, you saw the miracles I did in Egypt. In other words, God himself says, my miracles were proof in the proverbial pudding. So it says this confirms that the Exodus was the foundation. Now what is the Exodus? The Exodus is miracles. You could say you could you could replace in this sentence the word Exodus with the word miracles. This confirms that the miracles were the foundation or the Exodus was the foundation of their belief in him. So the miracles are very important. In fact, they very much make the foundation, but it has to be coupled with the message. This is why so many people are led by the spirit, big old giant air quotes, and the spirit is leading them to break the Torah, break the law of God, break the word of God, break the the, uh, the law of Moses. They're being led by the spirit, all right, but it's the spirit of Beelzebub. It's not the spirit of Mashiach. It's not the spirit of God. How can I say that with such confidence? Well, God is not double-minded. God is not, uh, he's not confused. He's not schizophrenic. He doesn't um, say one thing and believe another. He's not the father of lies. He doesn't lie to us and then uh, lead us in the other direction. He's not a uh, do-as-I-say-not-as-I-or-do-as-I-whatever, do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of God. It says, these words call to mind the words ending that you may know through the plague in Egypt, that I am Hashem. This remained the supreme goal of the divine acts in Egypt. What was the supreme goal? So that we would know God. Ultimately, the salvation of humanity would depend upon the realization of this purpose. So miracles do matter. Looking at this plague of darkness. Actually, here's just another little insight. It says it became morning I just love this little thought. Morning is a time of truth. It brings mercy to the righteous and punishment to the wicked. Scripture provides us with many numerous examples of this. Just a little insight. His mercies are renewed every morning for those who believe. Now, the, the, uh, the plague of darkness. The Midrash Chankuma writes about the plague of darkness. That the darkness, uh, it says here, what does it mean? The darkness was so tangible. Rabbi Avdimi Bar Hakam said... The darkness was doubled and redoubled to the extent that if an Egyptian was standing, he was unable to sit. If he was sitting, he was unable to rise. And if he was lying down, he was unable, unable to get up. The darkness plague was horrible. It was horrific. You could, If you were standing up, you were like trapped. There's another insight. I think it was, let me see, I believe... Yo creo que es en la palabra de Barca. bark. let's see here. Yes, this is what I was looking for. It says, the the palpable darkness was as if each individual Egyptian had been imprisoned all by himself in a black box, seeing the atmosphere of Egypt had been darkened. I mean... You can't even move. It's so thick. Not only is it, is it touch, can you touch it, but it confines you. Man, there's, I tell you what, that's an entire drosh right there, how the darkness can confine you. This is, I said this earlier, I think it may have been on, uh, uh, on Sunday, that the, the reason I'm so passionate about the Lapid message, and one of the reasons why I frequently. Um, teach against the utterly ridiculous Messianic Gentile slash Noahide theology is because it keeps people spiritually bound in like this box of darkness. And the odd thing is, is that when you're in darkness, you don't realize it. It says God intensified this darkness to the extent that it was felt physically, preventing people from being able to move without bumping into the darkness at every move they tried to make. Can you imagine that you're trying to walk around and you're literally bumping into the darkness? It says in Rabbi Monk's commentary, just to reiterate this fact, Rashi quotes a Midrashic interpretation that the darkness was so thick that it had substance and could be touched. Ramban adds that the atmosphere was filled with an extremely thick layer of cloud in which any man-made light was automatically extinguished. Even if you tried to light your Bic lighter, it would go out. Even if you had the windproof uh, type lighter. It would go out. A lamp gave no light. I mean, even, I mean, sometimes they tried to use the 15,000 uh, loom uh, LEDs. They didn't work either. It says the acrophical book, Wisdom of Solomon, eloquently describes the torment, anguish, and danger brought on by the plague of darkness, which spread gloomy night over the Egyptians while the Israelites were basking in dazzling light. Now it goes on to talk about the fact that um, that the the Israelites, they had light in their dwellings. By the way, this light, I just wanted to mention this, I just was looking over here because I thought I I remembered another insight. Rabbi Nechmeniah brings down that this darkness... Was the is this very same darkness that is, quote, the the darkness originated in Gehenim, that is hell. Gehenim and hell are the same thing. So, this darkness that was being talked about here is the very darkness of Gehenim itself. There's a lot of discussions about, you know, the the, the nature of the darkness, and, and there's a thought process that the nature of darkness is just simply the absence of light. Which is why it's so um terrible. But for the Israelites, there was dark there was, excuse me, there was light in their dwellings, and not just in their dwellings. That's the other aspect of this that the, the sages bring down that there was there was light wherever they went. Just like with the plague of wild beasts. I said the plague of wild beasts stopped at the border of of Goshen, but it wasn't limited to that. Whenever the Israelites walked wherever they walked, the scorpions and the snakes uh fled from before them. And uh James Robertson uh Robertson broke down brought down in a comment that that would mean that each individual Jew was likened to the ark. Because when the ark went forth the snakes and the scorpions also fled. And that's was a great insight because that's true. We are likened to the ark why? Because we are like the embassy of Shemayam wherever we go. Wherever we go. Sometimes we forget that because we don't feel so whatever. That's why we can't be emotion-based in our theology. So another, just another insight. We're going to get into more of this probably as, as we go along, but it says there was thick, thick darkness. It says it's in an, In all the earlier plagues, it was made quite apparent to the Egyptians that the Israelites were not sharing their grim fate. The plague of darkness was an exception. As Rashi explains, it served to provide a cover for the necessary death of the wicked Jews. Now, We're going to end it there, and we're going to come back tomorrow and explain what this means, the death of the wicked Jews. What was the darkness to conceal? And what does this teach us about God's plan of salvation? That's going to be tomorrow, so join us then. Thank you so much for being with me this morning. I look forward to seeing everybody tomorrow. Until then, have a great, wonderful, and amazing, and glorious day. May today... Be a day of good news and blessing for you and the merit of Messiah Yeshua. Be safe, be blessed, and we'll see you tomorrow morning for the third Aliyah.